Is there a new status for you guys? You married? Let me see your ring. Did he give you a ring? Congratulations. Who ring? Got back from, uh, did you go on a honeymoon? Where did you go? Caribbean cruise. Oh, great. And you didn't get sick on the cruise? You did? She did? <laughs> Sounds like a great honeymoon. <laughs> Yeah, well, we had a wedding this weekend as well in our family, and so that's why my brother Bobby and uh, his family are here. His middle son, uh, Matthew, is a student at DBU in his last semester, and uh, he married a Texan girl uh, who lives in Crawford, Texas, but has just graduated from DBU and works with uh, Southwest Airlines. And Matthew is actually uh, working at the university full time. Uh, he was assistant to uh, the president, and he moved over to another department where he got more money. And, uh, so anyway, so they just lost a son or gained a daughter-in-law, whichever you, however you look at that. How do you look at that? <laughs> notice they, you notice how they hesitated. <laughs> just the way it goes. Gain a daughter. I don't believe all that nonsense. <laughs> I've been through that. I, you know, I haven't gained any daughters. I don't believe <laughs> Easy to say a day after the wedding that you gained a daughter, isn't it? How many have. No, I'm not going to go into <laughs> But anyway, okay, so John chapter 7. Are you with me? Okay, so John chapter 7 is interesting because it becomes a transition uh, in the book of. Uh, uh, in the gospel, because John 7 uh, launches Jesus into his the last six months of his ministry. Okay? And here's how I'm going to outline the passage that we're covering today. We're going to look through verses 1 through 24. Verses 1 through 9, uh, Jesus, we have a, a discussion between Jesus and his brothers, which takes place in Galilee in the north. That's verses 1 through 9. And then verses 10 through 24, we have Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem, 80 miles south. Okay? And once Jesus travels southward into Jerusalem, he will never go back to Galilee again. So his life will end in Jerusalem on the cross. So that is where this, this chapter begins all of that and... By the end of John chapter 25, Jesus will have died and been resurrected. Okay, so let's look at verse 1. After these things, after what things? After the things in chapter 6. All the controversy about eating my flesh and drinking my blood and all that. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. Now notice he stays in Galilee for a while. For he did not want to walk in Judea. He didn't want to go south. Why not? Look what it says. Because the Jews, that would be the Jewish leadership, sought to kill him. You remember when he was in Jerusalem the last time and he healed the man who had been sick for 38 years on the Sabbath? They wanted to arrest him and kill him because he broke the Sabbath law. And so Jesus, if he had his brothers, would rather stay up in Galilee for a while rather than go down south. Because if he goes south, he knows what he's going to face. He's going to face arrest and possible death. And so Galilee is a much safer place. 
Now, that's a summary statement. Verse 1 sort of summarizes what's going on. Now, beginning in verse 2, we get to the particulars. And look what it says in verse 2. Now, the feast, the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. Now, what do we know about the Feast of Tabernacles? There's several things. First of all, it's a pilgrim feast. The Jews celebrated three pilgrim feasts, which means they actually, uh, wherever they were living in Israel, they would make a pilgrimage down to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast, and the Feast of Tabernacles was one of these pilgrim feasts. Second of all, it signified Israel's journey through the wilderness after the Exodus when they stayed in tents. And so this feast is also known as the Feast of Tents, or Tabernacles, or Booths. And we mentioned some of that once before earlier in the book when I told you about many of my friends who were Jewish would build these lean-tos and sleep in them for a week uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jews, Orthodox Jews still do this today. If you live out in North Texas, when the Feast of Tabernacles comes, look in people's backyards. Climb up and look over their fence. You'll find these little temporary shacks or shanties. And they will actually go out there and live in those for a week. So that's what it signifies. Israel's journey through the wilderness when they had to live in booths or tents. By the way, when they traveled through the wilderness, God lived in a tent as well, didn't he? He lived in a tabernacle as well. A temporary abode. So that's what it signifies. By the time of Jesus' day, the feast took on new meaning, and it was, a, it was a practiced as a harvest feast. After the grapes and the olives had been picked. And so they were celebrating God's abundance. So it had two purposes. And uh, so this was probably the most joyous of all the feasts that the Jews celebrated because it celebrated a harvest that God had given them abundance. Also, this feast during Jesus' day took on end time significance. The Jews began to say, if God has given us this kind of abundance every harvest season, we just can't wait for the kingdom to come when there's abundance worldwide. And so when they celebrated this feast, they were always yearning for the fullness of God's kingdom when there would be universal abundance. And then finally, the last thing I want to tell you about this feast is it lasted from eight days, for eight days. It started on the Sabbath, and it ended on the Sabbath. Eight days. Now that's going to be very significant in our passage, and you'll see why. So that's what you need to know about the feast. That sort of sets up the passage for us. So that context leads to a challenge. So look at verse 3. His brothers, that's Jesus' brothers, therefore, in light of the feast, that it was at hand, his brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go to Jerusalem. You need to get down to that feast. Why did they say that? What's the purpose for Jesus going to the feast? Look at this. That, so that, in order that, your disciples may see the works that you're doing. 99% of Jesus' miracles or works were performed up north. And so what they say is you need to get down south so that your disciples can see your works. And the reason they say that is verse 4, because 
No one does anything in secret. You know, and what's Galilee? Galilee is sort of like a backwater area. Because no one does anything in secret while he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. In other words, if you want to be a movie star, don't stay in Mesquite. <laughs> Come to Hollywood. If you want to be a stage actor, don't live in Garland. Go to New York City and Broadway. If you want people to know that you're the Messiah, get down to the capital city and perform your miracles there. Show yourself. Present yourself if you really want to get the followers. If you want to bring in the kingdom, that's what the, the, the brothers are saying to him. Now, the question we have to ask, are these brothers being sarcastic? You know, let's say you had a brother or a sister. And they said, I want to be an actor. Would you say, well, then go to Hollywood. <laughs> Would you be sarcastic? Well, if you're good enough, go to Hollywood. Because that's where, you know, if it plays in Peoria, it'll play anywhere. Did you ever hear that? Now you have to test yourself out. Are they being sarcastic? Say, they say to themselves, this guy, my, my brother's half nuts, you know. So, hey, bye, buddy. If you want to grow, if you want to do that, go to, go to the capital city. Let's see what you really made out of. Or are they sincere? Are they for him? Are they behind him? Are they proud of him? Are they encouraging him? Well, I think we get a clue to that. When you look at verse 4, yeah, verse 4, it says, um, in verse 3, his brothers are mentioned, in verse 3, and in verse 3, disciples. His brothers therefore said to him, depart from here, go to Jerusalem, that your disciples... Notice it's brothers versus disciples. Do you see that? Which means his brothers are not his disciples. So maybe they aren't quite so sincere. <laughs> maybe they are, you know, chiding him or they're jealous. We're not sure exactly what that is. But now, look down at verse 5. I think this is a clue to the situation. For even his brothers did not believe in him. <clears throat> now, last week we saw how everyone was abandoning him. Remember that? They stopped walking with him. They just left him. Guess what? Notice this. Not only did, was everyone abandoning him, guess what? Even his own family. If you can't get your family behind you, who are you going to get behind you? So he has really no one supporting him at this point except the apostles, 12 apostles. So there's this great abandonment. I think that's what's... What, the gospel writer John wants us to see. Uh, look at uh, verse 6. We get Jesus' response. Then he said, when they said, well, go there, guess what Jesus said? My time has not yet come. But your time is always ready. <clears throat> now remember in chapter 2 when Mary came to Jesus and she said, hey, they ran out of wine. You know, do something. And what does Jesus say? My hour, my time is what? Not yet come. If I go performing some sort of miracle, everyone will see it, you know, and it's not time for me to reveal myself as the Messiah on a large scale. So he says, my time has not yet come. See, Jesus is on God's timetable. But he says about his brothers in verse 6, is it verse 6? What does he say there? 
but your time is always ready. So we see a difference between Jesus and his brothers. Uh, Jesus is on God's timetable. It's not yet time for him to reveal himself through his miracles. But his brothers, they can do whatever they want on their own timetable. And that's the difference between someone who is, let's say, in full-time ministry and someone who is not. For example, if I'm here on Sunday morning. I have a responsibility. I have to follow the ministry, right? Let's say I were a pastor. It would be the same way. But guess what? A church member can do what? They want to go on vacation this week. They can do that. They want to watch the Cowboy game. I come to Sunday. They can do that. See, their time, their schedule's their own, right? But for the person who, in a sense, feels God's call on their lives, which Jesus does here, he is on God's timetable. So the brothers can schedule their time any way they want. Jesus, they say, go down to Jerusalem, show yourself on the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus says, well, it's not my time to reveal myself this way. But you know what? You're on your own timetable. You can go down to Jerusalem anytime you want. So that's what we have is this discussion going. Notice the word yet in verse 6. My time has not yet come, which means there will come a time when he's ready to reveal himself, but not yet. So timing is everything. When he does reveal himself, what's going to happen? He's going to be crucified. So he's not ready to reveal himself fully. This is what many theologians and New Testament scholars call the messianic secret. Jesus does not fully reveal himself to in the capital city on a wide scale. He sort of keeps things you know, under wraps until the right time. So, when will he reveal himself? He'll reveal himself later on. And, by the way, we can actually pinpoint the exact date when these verses take place. We know that Jesus dies six months after these events take place on Passover. So what this means is that this is the Feast of Tabernacles that precedes that Passover. Jesus dies somewhere in probably April of uh, 30 AD. And that means this Feast of Tabernacles began on October 12, 29 AD. So we can actually date this event. Sort of interesting. Isn't it? So the first contrast between Jesus and his disciples has to do with timing and scheduling. He's on God's timetable, they're not. And then we have a second contrast. Look at verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me. Uh, and then he explains why. Because, here's why it hates me. Because I testify, or I witness of it, that its works were evil. So why doesn't the world hate his brothers? Because his brothers are part of the world. They operate according to the principles of the world, the principles of society. Jesus operates according to the principles of the kingdom of God. Therefore, Jesus' principles and the world's principles are diametrically opposed. And when Jesus gets up and preaches, he testifies against the world. But the world loves its own, so they would, the world will not. In fact, it doesn't say that the world will not hate his brothers. It says what? Verse 7, the world cannot hate its brothers because its brothers are part of the world and the world loves its own. But Jesus is not of this world, and he stands opposed to the principles of the world. 
Notice what he testifies against in verse 7. He said, I testify that it sets the world's works are evil. See the word works there? The world has works. Look up at the end of verse 3. Disciples say you, that your disciples may see the works that you're doing. Jesus has works, and there the world has works. What kind of works does the world perform in verse 7? Evil. What kind of works does Jesus perform? Good works. Acts 10 says that Jesus was a man of God, anointed by God, going about doing good works. So Jesus does good works, things that lead to healing, health, restoration, redemption, forgiveness, and the world looks out for itself. So we have these good works and we have these evil works. So based on all this, what we have is a command. So look at, up in verse, look at verse 8. Here's what Jesus says to his brothers. You go up to the feast. See that? I am not yet going up to this feast. You go up to the feast, but I'm not going to the feast. Some translations don't have the word yet in there. Which, if you have a Bible in verse 8, how many of your translations say yet? You go up to the feast. Yet. How many do not say that yet? In verse 8, you go up to the feast. I am not yet. Your Bible doesn't have yet in verse 8. Let me see that. By the way, it's very interesting. I'm reading out of the New King James Bible. There was a survey, a major survey done just a month or two ago on the Bible reading habits of Americans. And the researchers were shocked. In fact, it was a, like a double-blind type of test where it was almost you know, uh, airtight in its results. They discovered that people who read the Bible at least once a week 55 to 61% read out of the King James Bible or a New King James Bible. The next closest translation is the New International Bible, 11%. And every translation after that is in single digits, which would be the New American Standard Bible, the American Standard Bible, all the, the Living Bible, in single digits. And it's shocked. So they actually did a second survey, and that survey confirmed the first survey. That given the reading habits and preferences of people, and they were shocked that young people, on Google searches, most of the people are using King James on the Google searches when they have choices. Do you want an NIV, New American Standard, King James? They're using King James or New King James. So the New King James puts it this way in verse 8. You go up to the feast. I am not yet going up to feast. I love why he's not going to go up to the feast at this time with his brothers. What it says at the end of verse 8. For my time has not yet fully come. He's on God's timetable. And that sort of confirms what we're saying. So look at verse 9. And when he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. He just stays right where he is. So this is uh, Jesus and his brothers, verses 1 through 9. Now we're going to see Jesus and his ministry down in Judea or Jerusalem. Because something changes. Look at verse 10. How does it open up? What's the first word in verse 10? But. So now you're in for a surprise. Okay? Here it is. But when his brothers had gone up, and we're talking about going up, even though Jerusalem was south, because it's elevated higher, 
sea level than Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, meaning to Jerusalem, then he also went to the feast. He ends up going, but he waits a couple days for them to get out of sight and get out of town. He goes up to the feast, but look what it says in verse 10. Not openly, but as it were, in secret. The word secret there is the Greek word crypto. He goes incognito. <laughs> uh, remember when he turned water into wine? He did it secretly. No one saw the miracle happen except the servants who were ladled the water out of the jars and carried it to the master of the feast. As they were carrying it over, the water turned to wine, and no one saw it except the servants. And no one would have believed the servant. <laughs> so Jesus does this in the same way. His hour hasn't come, so instead of doing something you know, fabulous, he does it secretly, incognito. Now what does that mean that he traveled there secretly? Uh, could have taken back roads? Could have wore a hoodie? <laughs> so no one would have recognized Maybe he just got in the middle of the crowd and didn't say anything. You know, maybe he had his disciples, his, the twelve apostles, go up ahead of him a little time. We don't know, but uh, we know he does not travel down to Jerusalem as a rabbi does with his entourage. He goes there secretly, which is very interesting. Now look at the next scene, verse eleven. When the Jews saw him at the feast. Then the Jews sought him at the feast right? And they said, where is he? So evidently, uh, word gets out that he might be in Jerusalem. They're not sure. Maybe there's rumors floating. Maybe somebody's spotting that. Wasn't that Jesus had just crossed over into the city line? You know, maybe they're not sure. And uh, then they lose sight of him. But there's a thought that he might be there. And so the Jews begin to ask. Uh, these rumors circulate to try to find out where he is in verse 11. Now that leads to a debate in verse 12. And there was much complaining, and the word really means murmuring, between the people, among the people concerning him. So they are talking amongst themselves. They said, hey, I heard Jesus was spotted. Oh, you mean that guy who's that false prophet? <laughs> And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, so there's some of this murmuring about Jesus in verse 12. Concerning him, look what else it says in verse 12. Some said he is good. Others said, no. On the contrary, he deceives the people. So what we have is a split uh, of opinion amongst the crowd regarding Jesus. Some believe that he's a prophet a representative of God, a spokesperson of God. Others believe that he's an imposter. Uh, but look what it says in verse 13. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews, meaning the Jewish leaders. Uh, they were talking amongst themselves. And I, in many ways, it's like church people. What do you think of the pastor? What do you think of the uh, Sunday school teacher? You know, and, uh, and you just talk amongst yourself. You sort of talk. 
because you don't want the word to get back to the leadership or the Sunday school teacher, which you might think of, or whoever you're talking about. So uh, what you do is when you talk to people, you sort of test the waters and say, Lauren, what do you think of it? Don't want everybody else around you hearing it, but you're, you're testing the waters and you're poisoning and you say, wait, listen, if you're with me, then I say yes, or if I strongly oppose that opinion, I say, no, that's not what I really believe. So you can sort of relate to that, can't you? We've all have, is there anyone in the class who's never done anything wrong? If there are, you're a much better person than I. I do things like that all the time. Get in my car and my wife and I talk. I know you don't. So anyway, at this point, what happens? Jesus comes out in the open. Look what it says in verse 14. Now, about the middle of the feast, we're doing about Wednesday. Somewhere around Wednesday. Jesus went up to the temple and he taught. He steps out of the shadows and he takes a public stand in the temple and he begins to teach like a rabbi. Now remember the last time he was in the temple, we saw him in the Gospel of John, he overturned the table. That wasn't such a good situation. So we know that he's going to be in trouble once he goes in the temple and he begins to teach. And sure enough, there's a controversy that's stirred. There's a reaction. <laughs> Look what happened. In verse 15 it says, The Jews marveled. means they were amazed at his teaching, at what he was saying. And they said, and this would be amongst themselves as well, how does this man know letters having never studied? Uh, how does he know all this? He hasn't studied with a credentialed, accredited rabbi. He's never gone to seminary. You know, he's from Galilee. Would you say Nazareth? Could anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, uh, where did he get this knowledge? Where did he get this insight? They're flabbergasted. They hear him. You ever hear somebody speaking you didn't expect much and they got up there and man, they just, whoo, they just blow you head. What in the world is this guy? So they're, you know, surprised and they're caught off guard by the, the power of the speech and what he says. So they're asking, you know, how do you, he's not a man of letters. How does he know this? So Jesus gives an answer. Look what he says in verse 16. Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine is not my own, but his who sent me. Uh, he boldly says, I'm speaking on behalf of God. I get it from God. We know earlier in John's Gospel, he only says what he hears God say, right? He only does what he sees God do. So he claims to be God's authorized spokesman. He learned directly from God. The Holy Spirit has come upon him. He's learning directly from God. And then he follows that up with verse 17, which many Bible teachers believe is the key verse, But I'm con and I think it is a key verse, but one that is usually misinterpreted. Okay. So here's how Jesus follows up that statement. If anyone wills, so if you want to know if I'm a God's authorized teacher and I speak on behalf of God, here's what he said. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, meaning the teaching, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. So he's basically saying, here's how you can tell whether I speak on behalf of God. I'm going to give you a test. Here's how you can test me to determine whether I speak on behalf of God. Okay? Now the test is twofold. 
One part of the test applies to the listener. Okay? One part of the test applies to the speaker. Okay? So let's look at the part of the test that applies to the listener. Look what he says. <clears throat> if anyone wills to do his will, verse 17, that's the listener, he shall know concerning the teaching whether it's from God or whether I speak on my behalf. Now, here's how we misinterpret it. If I ask you, Willie, what are the most important words in verse 17, you might give me a couple answers. I'm going to show you what I think the most important words are. Notice the words to do. You see that? If anyone what? Wills what? To do his will. Uh, it's talking about obedience. Not if you desire to know the truth. That's how we use Well, if you really desire to know the truth, you'll know the truth. No, a lot of people say they desire to know the truth. It's not if you desire to know the truth. It's if you desire to what? To do it. To do his will. Do you really want to be an obedient disciple of Jesus Christ? If that's your heart's desire, to obey God at every turn, you'll know who speaks for God and who doesn't speak for God. And that's how you, what you should do every time you hear somebody. If you're, that's your heart's desire is to do right and be obedient, you'll know the issue is obedience. Okay? That's the test for the listener. Now look at the test for the speaker. Verse 18. He who speaks for himself. Here's how you'll know. He seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. And no unrighteousness is found in him. In other words, does the speaker seek to boost his own ego? Does the speaker seek to boost his own reputation? Does the speaker want to have honors and accolades poured upon him, that he is somebody? If that's the case, that's the one who doesn't speak for God. The one who speaks for God is constantly trying to bring honor to God. That makes sense? So now Jesus asks this probing question in verse 19. He says this, Did not Moses give you the law? And the answer is what? Yes. Yet none of you, what? Keeps the law. You don't obey the law. That's why the issue of obedience to the listener is important. You know, Moses gave you the law, but you don't what? You don't obey the law. So guess what? If they don't have a desire to obey the law, will they know who's speaking the truth on behalf of God? No, they won't know anything. They're dumb as spit. Because they don't desire to be obedient to God. Does that make sense to you? Keep going in verse 19. He says this, But none of you, Talking to these Jewish leaders. Keeps the law. So why do you seek to kill me? <clears throat> what are you, a bunch of hypocrites? You claiming that I broke the law when I healed a man on the Sabbath, and I'm worthy of death. Well, how about you? You ever kept the law? No. Then what are you worthy of? Death? What are you, a hypocrite? See how Jesus is sort of laying this out for the audience? Uh, they're, they're, they're lawbreakers. See? And then we get this rebuttal from the crowd, and I really like this verse. Because what the crowd does now is they come to their leader's aid. They come to defend their Jewish leaders whom they put their confidence in. And look what they say in verse 20. The people, that's the crowd. First, the Jewish leader. The crowd answered and said, 
they said this to Jesus, you have a demon. They're seeking to kill you. See, now the first thing you realize is they, they don't know that their leaders are trying to kill Jesus, do they? They're just the crowd. They're saying, well, who's trying to kill you? You're saying people are trying to kill you? Well, you know, if you think people are following you and trying to kill you and get you, what are you? You're paranoid. And in those days, you know how they didn't know the word paranoid. That's a nice psychological term. So guess what? If a person acted paranoid, what did the people assume? He had a demon. <laughs> Today we say you're paranoid. So uh, they don't realize that their leaders are trying to kill Jesus, and they just assume that Jesus is, is paranoid. Obviously, they don't believe he speaks on behalf of God, so they themselves are not trying to be obedient as well. So Jesus answers them in verse 21. He answered and he said to them, You know something? I did one work. I did one work and you all marvel. You know, I, I heal a man and will you just... Your mouth hangs over. Just one work is like that. I say one word in the temple and you all marvel. You're amazed at I speak. See, that's what he says. So, uh, he said, you're flabbergasted when I do things like this. Now, look at verse 22. Moses, therefore, he says, gave you circumcision. Very important verse. Moses gave you circumcision. Um, by the way, not that it was motherless, but from our fathers. Uh, Moses didn't really give us circumcision. That was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember, God said to Abraham, he had to be circumcised. That preceded Moses about 400 years. But you know what Moses did? Moses codified or codified circumcision. He put it as part of the law. So Moses has given you, has codified or codified the circumcision. He's made it part of the law in verse 22. And then look what he says at the end of verse 22. And you, because of that, circumcise a man on the Sabbath. <clears throat> Moses gave you the law of circumcision, and therefore, in light of that law, you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Now the law stated this, that if a baby was born male, eight days later it had to be circumcised. That was the law. Now, how about if the baby is born on a Saturday? It's born on a Sabbath, and it has to be circumcised eight days later, which also falls on a Sabbath. If you circumcised the baby, would you be breaking the law or keeping the law? See the genius of Jesus, how he could argue? And by the way, what did we say about this feast? It began on a Sabbath? It ends on a Sabbath. So Jesus says, well... If the baby was born on the Sabbath, would you be keeping the law if you circumcise it on the following Sabbath? And the answer is what? <laughs> well, the answer is yes, because Moses said it had to be born on the Sabbath. So, but there is a Sabbath law, right? You shall keep the Sabbath. That's the fourth commandment. But this law supersedes it. There are some things you can do on the Sabbath. Can, if your ox falls into a ditch on the Sabbath, can you go pull it out? Of course. If your baby was born on the Sabbath 
and it's a Sabbath when you're supposed to circumcise him. Can you do that? Yes. If a man's been sick for 